Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Aren't you glad for the rain today? Yes. Is it, is it supposed to continue to rain all day? And tonight? Clearing up this afternoon? I, I really enjoyed this morning. I loved seeing the rain. And we need the rain. That's good. Thank the Lord for the rain. We're in continuing chapter 7 today, so open your Bibles to John chapter 7. We're going to pick up where we left off. Verse 36 is where we left off uh, two weeks ago. We weren't able to meet last week, but uh, we will be uh, starting with verse 37. We're going to try to go to the end of the chapter. I went ahead and put some notes on the board for all the way to the end of the chapter. We'll see if we get that far. That would be a section from 37 to 52. And here Jesus is talking about living water. That's a phrase we all hear a lot around here because of living water ministries or living waters ministries. You know, when, it, when we started living water, when I started it was living water ministries and then it became living waters ministries. It just everybody never knew whether to put the S on the water or not. But uh, this is clearly a beautiful metaphor in scripture, Old Testament as well as New Testament. Uh, this idea of living water. And the idea of living water springing up within us. So we're going to hear Jesus talk about that, and we'll talk about it a little bit uh, as well. We're going to cover several different things today. But as we begin this section of Scripture, you notice that the very first words are, on the last day. On the last day. What, the last day of what? We've been in one of the big Jewish feasts of celebrations. Does anybody remember the feast that we're celebrating? Sukkoth. The Feast of Booths, or sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles, where the people all went camping in the city and set up little tents and huts made out of branches. And, and it was really, a, it's one of the most popular of all the feasts, and it lasts eight days. So this is the eighth day on the last day. Now let me we paint a picture for you of something that happens on this feast, in, during this feast, I should say. Every day during this feast, the priests would go to the pool of Siloam and they would gather up some water in a pitcher and they would take it to the altar in the temple square and they would step up the great steps and in front of the altar they would pour that water onto the ground and it would run down the steps down into the street keep that image in your mind that was a daily every day it's the eight days eight days of the feast every day that happened okay so let's read let's read at least this section through verse 44 on the last day of the feast the great day jesus stood up and proclaimed if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit which those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
When they heard these words, some of the people said, This is really the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Let's stop at that section right there and let's talk about that. A repeated theme. They want to arrest Jesus. They want to, but no one lays hands on him. Remember, we've talked a little bit about the fact that his hour, his time, had not yet come. In the scripture, uh, John even writes that when he talks about uh, the spirit, he talks about the spirit had not been given yet because Jesus had not been glorified. His hour of glory, you know, the glory of the resurrection had not yet come. But on the last day, let's talk about this last day. Is it interesting to me that it's an eight-day feast? How long is a week? Seven. seven days. So it's seven days plus one. Any, any, is that interesting to you? How do you get the eighth day? Why not just seven? Why, why this eighth day? That's interesting, isn't it? Because seven was the days that it for the Lord to do his creations. Yeah, mm-hmm. seven days is the creation story. On the seventh day, God rested. But the eighth day is a very remarkable uh, thing that sometimes we we just miss. There's a bookstore here in town called Eighth Day Books. Anybody ever heard of it? Ever been there? Wonderful bookstore. Love that bookstore. Could sit all day in that bookstore and sit in the corner and read and drink coffee. Never leave. So is the eighth day between Sunday and Monday or is it Monday? That's a great question. <laughs> Let me tell you what it is. It's Sunday. Okay? Not then, because it was the Eighth day, okay. So if they started on a, remember they started, I think, over the Sabbath, okay. Which is Friday night to Saturday, okay. So then you would end if you started. I don't have a calendar with me, but but let's say if you started here, let's say you start Friday evening because everything starts in the evening. So let's say Friday to Saturday sundown. That's the first day, and then Saturday to Sunday is the second. Sunday to Monday, and then Monday to Tuesday, and then Tuesday to Wednesday, and then Wednesday to Thursday, always at sundown, to get your full days, and then uh, Thursday to Friday, and now we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, now we've got a week, right? So now, that would mean this is the eighth day. The last day, we know from history that it's an eight-day festival. It doesn't say eighth right there, but the last day is the eighth day. So Friday evening, I'm sorry. Um, so Friday evening to Saturday evening, which is kind of where we began, becomes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth day. And we're back to where? We're back to the Sabbath. So there are two Sabbaths included in this feast, if you will. But why the eighth day? Why not just end it at the end of seven days? Because seven is, like you said, Mark, seven is kind of an uh, interesting number in Scripture, a kind of a, a number that represents the creation story and the fullness of what God did in his word. But the eighth day is very important. It is the day of the resurrection. 
okay, in symbol, in symbolism. Now, here, depending on when they started, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about what day they started on, but what I'm going to be dogmatic about is why it's the eighth day. Because Christians began to worship on Sundays. They'd always worshipped on, Jews had always worshipped on the Sabbath, which is Friday evening to Saturday evening, always a time of worship. But Christians began to pointedly worship on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday, because why? That's the day of the resurrection. And it becomes a day like any, no other day. Because on that day, the kingdom of God was manifest in glory as Christ was resurrected. So we as Christians, when we enter to worship on Sunday, we're entering to worship on the eighth day. In fact, there is this beautiful thought that we live in a perpetual eighth day. And that eighth day is the kingdom of God. Outside of time and space, if you will. The kingdom of God has come. Jesus always said the kingdom of God is at hand. So I just wanted to bring that to you a little bit as we begin this to think about. It's the great day of the feast. It's the eighth day. And there's, they weren't thinking a thing about that then. They didn't understand the idea of the eighth day as we Christians do because of the resurrection. But Jesus stood up. And he proclaimed, now remember what I told you about the feast. The priest has got the water and he's going to pour it out in front of the altar. And that's a big moment. This is the high holy moment. The people have their palm branches. They kind of gather around the altar. They start to march around the, the altar in the temple square. And the priest goes and gets the water. And here we see beautiful symbolism from the book of Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah. I have a note here. Isaiah 12, 3. It says, you will go and draw waters from the well from the well of, of salvation. And so there's beautiful symbolism here uh, in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. And as he pours the water, that would be, they would actually be singing, all the people are gathered around and they're singing the Psalms from Psalm 100 and, I believe it's 113 to 118. Those Psalms are the Psalms that the people sang during this festival, during this service, if you will, when this water is being poured out. And uh, gone to the well, get the water, come and pour it out. So this is a high holy moment. And in this moment, Jesus stands up. And he says, you can hear him probably having to shout because everybody's singing. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What a way to interrupt a service. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Well, what are they doing? They're picturing the water being poured out in front of the altar. And it's a, it's a memorial, it's a remembrance of understanding that God brought water from the rock. Remember the Old Testament stories? The water from the rock. When they were in this whole thing, this whole feast, is a remembrance of the deliverance from when they were in the desert, they left Egypt, on their way to the promised land, ended up spending 40 years till a generation passed because of their disobedience. And in that time, they camped in the desert. And God provided water from the rock. That rock is Jesus Christ. We know that. They didn't know that. But as the water is being poured out, they're remembering. the. And, and here's this guy, Jesus, who they already know. Everybody knows who he is because he's been the center of attention doing all these miracles. They think they know who he is. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. <clears throat> what is that? What is Jesus trying to say to them? 
Come to me and you will drink living water, eternal water, water of life, live forever. These are, these are the thoughts. This, this is a very spiritual moment. And he is calling all attention to himself. Now, he goes on. Notice that he says, Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now, what's really interesting about this quotation here, and your, most of your Bibles put it in quotation marks, What's really interesting about this is Jesus refers to as the scripture said, but you can search the Bible over any version you want. You will not find that exact verse. There's no verse in our Bibles that say that uh, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. It's just not there. Now, the closest we can get to it, and the closest scholars have gotten to it, is maybe Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 14 says this. And this is 14 verse 8. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the east and the other half toward the west. And it will be summer as well. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. That's Zechariah prophesying about that day. What does he mean by that day? He means the day of the Lord. The day when the Lord comes finally. The day of the kingdom. Which Jesus is inaugurating, of course, through his death and resurrection. And he says, Zechariah talks about living waters. He says living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. So let's think about the symbolism here. What might... What might Jerusalem have symbolized from, from uh, Zechariah to the story we're in John. Who would be Jerusalem in this story? Jesus, perhaps. Jesus is, is the symbol of Jerusalem. He's the one that says, out of me will come the rivers of living water. It's not going to come from this altar. It's not going to come from the stone. It's going to come from me. And, of course, the living water itself is a is, is kind of a metaphor. I'm going to need some room up here, so I'm going to erase this right here real quick. I, I want us to look at the fact that, let's look at that verse that Jesus says here. Out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. In some of your versions of the Bible, does yours say anything else besides heart? Probably, probably does. Belly. Yours says belly. Okay, and which version are you reading? King James. King James says belly. Very good. What, what else? Anybody else have some different words there? It's verse uh, 38. Why says, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So yours doesn't say out of something like a belly or a heart. Okay. It says from within me. From within me. Some of them will say from, the, I think it's the NASB that says uh, from, what's that? Heart. From heart. Yours says heart. I think the NASB says from your innermost being. The idea of your innermost being. Well, this is an interesting passage here. And I, this is one area where I believe that the word heart is wrong. I don't believe it's the best choice. Even though this RSV says heart. And several do. King James, interestingly, I think has the best word here. Belly. Sounds funny, doesn't it? Out of, the, out of your belly will flow living waters. Well, if you go back to the Greek, the very word that is used here in the Greek New Testament is this word. Koilias. 
Elias. Okay, sounds almost like, can you think of some medical terms that kind of sound like colitis? You know, that's a bad medical term. We don't, don't want to think about colitis, but your belly hurts if you have colitis, right? <laughs> that's your belly right here, yeah, in your intestines. Now, but if, if, this were, if this were supposed to be heart, then it should say this word in the Greek. Cardis. So what does colitis mean? Cardis. Cardis means cardiology. Okay. Heart. This means heart. This means literally your belly. It means your belly, your, your inner, inner, your gut. See, it's a common word of, of our vernacular, your gut. You ever hear that term, you have a gut feeling? You've heard that before. What are you trying to say when you say that? So your cart your cardius is your heart. That's right. So your your, your heart's working. Deep What's that? Deep within. Deep within your gut. So to the Jewish people in the Hebrew mind, the word heart was where was the center of your thoughts. Okay. In the Old Testament, it says the heart is evil above all else. Okay. It was the center of your thoughts. Of course, that means the unredeemed heart. You know, it's not evil once Christ comes to dwell within us. But, but the idea of your innermost being or your belly in Hebrew thought was the idea of, of your, your emotions. This is where your gut feeling comes from. This is where your, your, your inner feelings, so your innermost being, uh, the seat of your deepest emotions and deepest feelings is the belly. So I think the King James has the best word there, interestingly enough. So out of... Jesus is saying, uh, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, in verse 39, he says this. He's talking about Jesus tells us who is the living water. Verse 39, he just tells us. John tells us, I mean, I'm sorry. John says, who, in 39, who does he say the living water is? Can you pick it out? It's the Spirit, capital S. That's right. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is the living water. Christ is the temple, the the spiritual Jerusalem, if you will, the holy city, and he's flowing from the very rocks. Christ is the rock in the Old Testament. So you see this is filled with metaphors from Old Testament images. But he says this about the the, uh, innermost being and the rivers of living water, he says they will flow, but he notice he says they haven't yet. Okay? He says that, um, now he's saying this about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive. Notice the grammar there. They were to receive, or it's talking about a future act. Because it says Jesus has not yet been glorified. What are they talking about? What is this future act that, they were to receive when Jesus is talking about this river of living water flowing. I put it on the board for you. Pentecost. We just celebrated it. Pentecost. The season of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit came and fell among believers, filling them with power, manifestations of tongues, but we know that's not always the case. But the idea is it was the filling with power from above. So what can we say about the Holy Spirit? What is Jesus? What is John, as he's writing about Jesus' words here, trying to communicate to us 
about life in the Spirit of God. Weren't the Old Testament prophets, didn't they have the Spirit? Didn't David have the Spirit? Didn't, didn't these Old Testament saints have the Spirit? Did they have it the same way we do? No, what's different? What is different about being a New Testament believer in Jesus Christ than having been an Old Testament saint? If they both were acting under the guidance and influence because one, of the Spirit. Because one was waiting to see, and today we have evidence. Okay. I think what I really believe I want you to catch here is that in that day, they were operating through the Spirit's guidance. But as a Christian believer, it is our privilege to operate through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to think about that. Internally. This is why Jesus is talking about this innermost being. He's trying to get to us that the very core of who you are will change when you receive the Holy Spirit. Not just believe. Remember the, the journeys of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And he would go to them and he would find believers, especially when he, I think it was in, when he went to, uh, was it Samaria or Ephesus? I get confused. I forget which one. But he, he goes and he finds this group of believers. And I think it was Ephesus. And he finds this group of believers and they're, they believe in Jesus. And he says, uh, when did you receive the Spirit? And they're going, what Spirit? We, we didn't know about the Holy Spirit. We just believe in Jesus. And he says, you must be filled with the Spirit. And it says that he lays hands on them, prays over them, and they receive the anointing and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is everything about Christianity is about life in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. It's not just about belief in Jesus as Messiah. And as we're going to see as we kind of follow this passage here, there are people here that are believing. They're beginning to believe, and we begin to see some divisions among the people. As you follow with them there just a little bit, it says, when the people actually heard Jesus talking like this, it says, some of them said, wow, this is really a prophet. Remember that word, the prophet, that relates all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Moses predicted the prophet will come. Talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Others are actually just saying, this is the Christ. Um, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Christos, okay? Messiah is a Hebrew word, Mashiach. But Christos is Greek, and John's bringing a lot of the Greek to play here. And, uh, and so, so they're believing. And then others, it says, are not believing. What are they doing? They're doubting, aren't they? Is ours more based on faith? Because today, you go by historical events, and the more you have faith and belief, the closer you get. I think it's always based on faith. Always based on faith. And even for them, it had to be based on faith. They're starting to learn what faith is. Isn't faith believing in something you can't see? That's right. And although they visually saw Jesus in that day, they're still believing in something they couldn't really see and understand. 
You know, it, was, it took an act of faith to see this man as the Christ, as the Messiah. And, and there's a great division among the people, and they're questioning. And, and it says here, some of them begin to say, well, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Is the Christ to come? So there's some of them are, half the people are starting to believe, the other half are not. Is it come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ is ascended from David and comes from Bethlehem? The village where David was? What are they missing here? Jesus is from Bethlehem. But they don't know that. Why don't they know that? They think, remember last time we were together and we left earlier, we talked so much about how they thought, Jesus said, you think you know me? Question mark. See, they thought they knew who he was. They knew it was common knowledge that this man, Jesus of Na- was from Nazareth. He was called Jesus of Nazareth. And he was the son of a carpenter. Mary's son. They lived up, Mary and Joseph lived up. And everybody knew that about him. But nobody really knew the story. It wasn't common knowledge that he was born in Bethlehem. They could have found out. I bet if they went up to Jesus and just said, tell us, Rabbi, where were you born? I bet he would have told him. Bethlehem. But, you know, they don't even think to go ask. <laughs> that amazes me. They just assume they know everything without even asking, without doing their, maybe we should call it due diligence. Is this person real? Is this person, you know, later on in, in the Gospels, in the epistles, John talks about testing the spirits. Don't just believe them, test them. Test every spirit to see if it's really from God. One of his tests, I can go down a tangent there, you know, is to always test whether people say that Jesus is really came in the flesh. That was the big test of the early Christians. Did Jesus really come in the flesh? Because Gnostics, Gnostic heresies said, no, he didn't. And, uh, and so test the spirits. They weren't really testing. They're just going off what they think is common knowledge. So there's this division among the people. Some of them want to arrest him, uh, but nobody lays hands on him. We know from earlier in the chapter, officers were sent by the Pharisees and everyone to go arrest him. And uh, they tried to lay hands on him and couldn't. So um, I, I think it's important. We're going to turn the page here and go to the next section. But just right now, let's think about this before we, before we move past this section. The Spirit of God has always been with believers. The Spirit of God was with Abraham. The Spirit of God was with Moses. The Spirit of God was with all the judges. The Spirit of God was with David. The Spirit of God was with the prophets always. Nothing could be done without the moving of God's Spirit. What's different now is how the Spirit moves. Okay? Because the external, now it's internal. Think of it as an external. and He moved externally. He maybe put himself on people in a, in a, in a, this is almost hard to imagine in your mind, in a hovering way to, to uh, move upon their emotions, to move upon their intellect, to inspire them to write these books of the Bible, if you will. But now, it's an, in, it's an innermost being. That's the cardiac, right? That's the, the <laughs> Heart. This is the heart. Okay? And, but it's the belly. Now, now, of course, he's in our heart, too. <laughs> you know the common phrase, Jesus lives in my heart. We, and why, why this shift? Why do some of these Bibles choose to translate the word heart in, in that verse 38? Why do they do that? Probably because, I mean, I, to me, if you're going to translate the Bible, if it says Greek belly, just put belly. Or, I, it, it, I think it, we think with, sometimes we think we think with our hearts. You know, we, you know, you've heard of, 
you know, somebody's a bleeding heart liberal. You've heard that phrase, a bleeding heart liberal or something like that. What is it trying to say? Trying to say that they let their emotions. So there was a context, maybe even by that day and time, uh, when, when these translators are writing. Remember, these scriptures are, these scriptures are being translated from the original Greek even centuries later. I mean, the, the Masoretic text that we read in our Bibles, our Protestant Bibles, are based mostly on the Masoretic text. Those were translated in the ninth century after Jesus. Okay? So the culture of the day... Fed culture of the day had changed. That's right. So maybe heart was a better translation for getting people to understand what it meant than belly. But in the Hebrew world, in the ancient world, when John was writing here, they understood the belly to be the innermost being. So kudos to the King James for being faithful to the right word there. Didn't they think the heart was the center core of the person's existence? You know, the key component? As what knows, they thought the thought came from your head. Yeah, they, they, they definitely identified the heart with the core of your thought process. You couldn't believe without the heart because you had to think it through, that sort of thing. So it's not just, this scripture even says, uh, I, I used to love, I can't even give you the chapter and verse right now, but the, I used to work, years ago I worked downtown in an old clothing store, and uh, we had this older black gentleman who was our custodian and cleaned the store. His name was William Brown. I loved William Brown. William Brown went to the, what that time was uh, Wichita, uh, what was it called? Lynx Church? Tap, Baf, Wichita Baptist Tabernacle. Now it's Wichita Bible Tabernacle, but it's a big church up on uh, the north part of town. And Pastor Lincoln Montgomery, love him to death. He's a wonderful man of God. But William Brown, this old man, he would sit there. We'd talk about church. And I'd say, William, I said, tell me, tell me about your church. And he would say, I said, what time's your service start? He said, oh, 10, 10.30. And I said, really? Yeah, wow. What time do you get done? He says, you never know. The spirit come, maybe 1, 2 o'clock. And I said, wow. He said, really? I said, you don't. He said, no, when the spirit comes, we just, whatever. You know, and I, that's, this was true. He was being truthful. And he would, then William would always have this quote. He would say, so as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. <laughs> Come back to what you're saying there, Dale, about the heart, you know. That thought is the center of our thoughts. We think with our heart, you know, not just our brain. So I, I, this is just a comment about translations in the Bible and why sometimes you'll hear one word over another. <laughs> But for today, what we want to see here is this idea that from our innermost being, Jesus is promising those that believe in him will be filled to overflowing with this living water or and with this Holy Spirit. Now, with that thought, let's turn the page to the next section. Well, for me, it's turn the page, probably not for you. And it says in verse 45, Now the officers went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this, man. The Pharisees answered them, Are you led astray also? Have any of the authorities or of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd who do not know the law are accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing or learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? 
Search, and you will see that no prophet is to rise from Galilee. So, we see there the officers, I said earlier in the chapter, had told us they were going to arrest him, and now they come back empty-handed. The Pharisees are not happy that they're empty-handed. They can't imagine, why didn't you arrest him? What's their answer? They didn't. I mean, they literally could have arrested Jesus if they tried. I mean, it kept saying his hour had not yet come. But, but they clearly at this point even stopped trying. They just went back to report empty-handed. And what did they say to the Pharisees? No man's ever spoke like this before. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it must have been like to hear Jesus stand in the middle of the great crowd in the temple and say, I like, to, I like to quote it. There's an old hymn. It's, Ho, everyone who is thirsty. Yeah, remember that hymn? Ho, everyone who is thirsty. You know, that, that ho is kind of an old English way of saying, can't you just hear Jesus saying, hey, everybody, everyone who's thirsty, you come to me, believe in me, and you will drink living water, and it will flow from your innermost being. I mean, I mean you're either going to see him as a nut, okay, which some of them clearly did, or you're going to be drawn to go, wow, he's talking about something way beyond anything we've ever heard. He's talking, and this is the guy that healed that blind man. This is the guy, and you start thinking through their mind all the miracles he's done and all the things they've heard him say. Remember how it said in the scripture that Jesus didn't teach as, as one you know, like the others. He taught as one having authority. It, who has authority but God, you know? Jesus taught, taught like you were God. So the officers say no man's ever spoken like this before. I, I, I think it's important. Here we're going to see the response of these divisions among the people. The Pharisees immediately accuse the officers of being led astray. Clearly the people are being led astray. These people who are starting to believe in Jesus, they're just being led astray. In fact, they say to them, they, they kind of have a, a phrase here that they use. It says that this crowd who does not know the law, they are accursed. Now the, the Pharisees are accusing the crowd of not knowing the law. First of all, the Pharisees are lawyers. In their day, they, they, the law of Moses. They lived their whole life to understand and try and interpret and try and live out the law of Moses in every exact detail. So is that the Ten Commandments, the law? That's the whole 613 laws of the Mosaic law. It goes beyond, They're all based out of that Ten Commandments. And then by this time, we know that it had expanded to over 6,000 laws. The Mosaic law grew from in the book of Leviticus, in the, the, the Torah, if you will, in all of the, where all the laws of God are stated, what we would call the Mosaic law, that God gave to Moses, gave to the people. There were 613 laws that scholars have been able to count. But we know by the time of Jesus that this, in the intertestamental period, the few hundred years before Christ came to the earth, there was this uh, group of people that became known as the Pharisees. And they had taken all of the rabbinic teaching ever since the time of Moses and extrapolated these laws into more laws until it grew to over 6,000. I mean, that's not hard for us to believe, really, when you think about what our Congress does every year. I, mean, I don't even know how many laws there are in this country. I mean, we, we, everything, every, we respond to everything with just write a new law, write a new law, write a new law. That's what we do. They were doing the same thing, in, in a sense. But they were doing it with God's law about how people live. 
So it became extremely legalistic. Boy, you couldn't, you couldn't do this. Oh, sorry, I took one too many steps. It was a Sabbath, I broke the law. I mean, just life was difficult in that sense. So they're, they're saying this crowd, they don't know the law, they're accursed. The, the rabbis uh, and the, the Pharisees, they had a saying when they said accursed. And they had a name for the people. And they called it this, they were the people of the land. The people of the land. And that's not written here in scripture, but it is, we know from study what they, they use this phrase. Uh, you can read about this in, uh, in fact, I'm going to read you some notes here from Bible commentator William Barclay talked about this. The people of the land. Now that, that sounds like a nice phrase to us. It sounds kind of like, you know, the pioneers were people of the land, right? You know, the early settlers and the frontier and all that. People of the land. That was a derogatory term to them. Those are the people of the land. Those are the people that till the soil. Those are the people that, that, that live low. You know, the Pharisees were the wealthy. And so the people of the land, here's what Barclay said. This is what the, uh, according to Barclay, there were six things that they said, the Pharisees always said about, the rabbinic law actually said about the uh, people of the land. Six things. Six things are laid down to the people of the land, about the people of the land. Number one, entrust no testimony to any of them. Number two, take no testimony from any of them. Number three, trust them with no secret. Number four, do not appoint them guardians of an orphan. Five, do not make them custodians of charitable funds. And six, do not accompany them on a journey. Pretty much sounds like they're outcasts. Don't do anything with them, right? No. Don't trust them. Don't talk to them. Don't hang around with them. Don't do anything. Was there a division among the people? Wow, was there ever a division among the people? Not just in the way the people are thinking about Jesus, in the way they're treated by their own leaders. And so they're saying they're cursed. And this is one of my favorite parts of scripture right here. I'm going to point out something to you that I think is so funny. Uh, and I know we shouldn't think of scripture as funny, but I'm sorry. Um, it says that uh, they, they say to him, you know, Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. In kind of a half-hearted way, he does. He says, hey, wait a minute. This is not the funny part. I, I have to say this to get the funny part. Nicodemus says, wait a minute. Do we, you know, our laws aren't about just convicting a man before he's had a chance to tell his story. And so when Nicodemus says that, they look at him like, well, are you one of them too? You know, are you, you, you come from Galilee too? Uh, that's a put down. Are you from Galilee too? Big put down. So uh, Nicodemus doesn't respond. We don't hear any more from him. We've got to give him a little credit, don't we? Don't we give him a little credit? At least he stood up. Jesus, in a half-hearted way, he stood up. He had a response to him. Remember Nicodemus back in chapter 3? What did he do in chapter 3? We saw Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night to question him because he was... He saw something in Jesus and he was interested. He wasn't your typical Pharisee. He's starting to think and believe. Maybe this is the Christ. So, he doesn't stand up for him. He's, he figures really quick by their response. Well, maybe I better just shut up. They're going to kill me with him or something. We think, well, before we're too harsh on him, let's think about our own lives. How often do we really stick up for Jesus? You know, we're probably all guilty at time or two of not sticking up for Jesus when we could. And I'm going to show you a difference why we should 
And Nicodemus couldn't be expected to be any more than the half-hearted person that he was because we are living in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't. Nicodemus did not have the power of the Holy Spirit within him to say, as Paul does, I can do anything through Christ who gives me strength. I can stand up to these fairies. He wasn't living in that. You and I, we have no excuse because we're supposed to be living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the funny part. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and you will see that no prophet is to rise from Galilee. That's not true. A little careful search of scripture will tell you that there was a prophet from Galilee. Does anybody know who it was? Prophet Jonah. Pretty well-known prophet. His story is very well-known. <laughs> Jonah and the whale. I mean, they should have known better. I think that's so funny that John included that in there. These Pharisees don't even know their own prophets' histories. They say no prophet is from Galilee, and that's not even true. Jonah, Jonah was. But this idea of the people of the land and the people being accursed, uh, and this half-hearted response, I think this is something I want to close with today as we kind of come, come towards the top of the hour here, is this idea that in this scripture, this passage of scripture, remember I said chapter 7 is going to go all through chapter 10. It's really all through one whole week. Everything that happens is this eight-day period of time. And even the stories that we're about to go into, in chapter 8 we're going to go into a story that talks about um, uh, the woman caught in adultery. And this is some familiar stories perhaps to you. And But 7 through 10, that's a long section of scripture that's kind of one flowing flowing event if you are a week in time and before we leave this section though I want us to think about what it means to us today to be people who believe in Jesus Christ and live in the power of the Holy Spirit what difference does that make what difference should that make why isn't it making a difference in our lives if it's not? I think there's something here. I think we can't just pass by this real quick. I think, and this may sound harsh, but I really do believe that one of the reasons Christianity is dying in America, and make no mistake about it, it's dying in America. Almost every church found denomination or group that you can think of is losing people in America. Um, if the statistics once upon a time said that they, you know, 85, 90% of the people always said they were Christian, but yet they didn't go to church. Now, today, the numbers of people leaving churches are in the droves. <laughs> Why? That's my point. Why is that? Good question. Why is that? I believe it's because we have lost our teaching on the Holy Spirit. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about Nazarenes here. I'm talking about everybody. There is one teaching in the Christian faith that makes all the difference in life in this world. And it's the teaching of being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The life of the Holy Spirit. Absent that, Christianity is just another set of beliefs like every other religion. Because 
We can believe in Jesus Christ, but without the Holy Spirit's power, we're stuck living. Yeah, our sins are forgiven. Maybe we're, we're stuck living, though, with no power to overcome. Why did Jesus die? Did he die just to forgive our sins? Or did he die, conquer death, by rising from the dead in order to give us the power of the Holy Spirit? Now, we're, we're going get, to get a little ahead of ourselves, but in the Gospel of John, when we get down to chapters 15, 16, 17, those are huge chapters. They're going to take us a long time. And I know that's seven, eight chapters away from where we're at now. So that could be another six months. I don't know. But the point is, when we get there, we're going to talk very deeply about the Holy Trinity. We're going to talk about what that means and why that must be. But I'm just going to touch on it at the surface here this morning. Because the truth is, without life in the Spirit of God, we have this beautiful thought of being saved from sin, but no power to live a victorious life. The Holy Spirit makes all the difference. So much so that in chapter 16, Jesus said, I have to go away. Okay, We're not there yet, I know, but Jesus is going to say, I've got to go away. Because if I go away, then the Father will send you the Holy Spirit. And you want the Holy Spirit. You want the Holy Spirit. And I, I love that thought of Paul speaking to those group of believers that, in that, that he found up there in Ephesus. And he, he's talking about, you know, when did you receive the Holy Spirit? I mean, that was the first question everybody asked. You, nobody asked that question anymore. I mean, we don't ask that. I don't know why. We don't, we don't talk about it. When I came to the church of the Nazarene, whatever, 34 years ago, it was the thing that drew me here. Period. End of discussion. I heard teaching about life filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctified. Holy. Being filled in such a way that I didn't have to live in the same fallen state. Constantly struggling with the same constant sins. And I said, tell me more. And I kept coming. With the Catholic Church in the morning, with the Nazarene Church at night, because we had Naz we had big services at night then. With the Catholic Church in the morning, I did that for about six months. And in the sixth month, happened to be that I had been here. It was time for the district assembly services, and the district assembly service. I didn't know what those were. I just came because that sounded like fun to me. Is that when all the Nazarenes get together? It's when the whole district gets together. Yeah, we got one coming up in July. And those evening services, and I, I can remember I can remember this thinking. The church was as full as it was on Sunday morning. And I'm thinking, if this is the whole district, where is everybody? You should have to hold this in century two or something. You know, <laughs> how does everybody fit? You know? And then I looked around me and I began to realize there weren't that many people here from our church. Yeah, there was a lot, but there was Night a lot. Night time was always lively. Morning time was always sleepy. <laughs> well, these were nighttime <laughs> services. These were nighttime services. You know, nobody's at work. And nobody had a good excuse. But, but I guess my point was I was looking at this, and I was trying to learn, and I'm thinking, wow, there's not that many people here, even though it's full. Where's all the, why do I, where would, and I'd talk to other people in this, and they, weren't you there last night at the service? No, we don't go to those, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, 
the preaching, but let me tell you why I went. The preaching was on the power of the Holy Spirit. It was on the power of being, I mean, I think that's what they were meeting for, just to, to preach about the power and being in, entirely sanctified as our Nazarene theology would talk about it. And I guess uh, what I want to share with you this morning is that that made the difference for me. Because I said, I want that. I want that. I don't know how to get it, but I know if I stick around here, they're going to teach me how to get it. And I wasn't hearing that at the Catholic Church. I'm not trying to put the Catholics down. I'm just saying I wasn't hearing it. Okay? But I believe living in the power of the Holy Spirit is everything to life in Christ. So much so that the Apostle Paul says in Romans, I believe chapter 8, and I'll get the verse wrong, maybe chapter verse 9, he says, if we have not the Spirit of Christ, meaning the Holy Spirit, if we have not the Spirit of Christ within us, then we have none of Him, meaning Jesus. At some point, it's okay to believe in Jesus because you've got to start somewhere. You want to believe in Jesus. Yes, we want to be, even if you're born in the church, like my children have been born coming to church from day one, practically. You know, They didn't live a life where they were out there struggling, thinking they had to hope somebody shared, an evangelist shared with them about Jesus. I mean, we, they were taught from the cradle up. But even them, at some point, they have had to come to a point where they must accept that there's more than just belief. There's life in the Spirit. Because that's the overcoming power. And that's the story of the New Testament. That's, that's the story of the New Covenant. Not just that Jesus died to forgive our sins. He rose again and conquered death so that we could live in the eighth day in the kingdom of Christ here and now. In the power of His Spirit. Changed, transformed people. Not just saved people. Transformed people. Like we talked about last time we met. How do you love your enemies? Absent the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't. And even with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not easy. But it can be done. It can be done. In fact, think of anything in the spiritual life that's not easy. Think, think right now, think in your life, what are the things that are not easy for me spiritually? Maybe it's morning devotions or just daily devotions in some way or maybe it's a particular struggle or sin. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is in your life, think about what is it that's not easy for me? And then think, am I relying on the power of the Holy Spirit? Have I really asked God to fill me with His Holy Spirit in such a way that I know I'm living in... In that power? That. <laughs> if the answer is no, then we got some work to do, spiritual work to do. I know this isn't a church service, and I'm not supposed to be up here preaching. This is Bible study. <laughs> but we can't hammer this point home enough. They're all lost people everywhere. They don't need another theology to believe in. They need a power to tap into. There are people that have tried every different thing and they've tried every Christian church practically. And there, there's people out there that are churched out. They don't want to go to church anymore because they didn't sense any difference. They, didn't, they weren't taught any difference. I'm telling you, it's everything. And, when the, and I, I think this comes to every generation. Every generation has to learn, are we going to discover 
the need for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and reteach it because you can't live on the past. Okay? Every generation. And it only takes one generation to miss it for lots of generations to follow to be lost. But God is always faithful to his church and in every church there is this message being preached. Look around you. There are Look at all the churches today that are supposedly falling apart and dying. Well, let's just name a few. Um, the Episcopal Church of the United States. What's that? The Episcopal Church is uh, like down here on Douglas St. James Episcopal Church. It's a denomination uh, that's branched out of the Church of England. Once upon a time, there were second cousins to the Episcopalians. The Episcopalians were the Church of England in America. Became known as Episcopal because once the Revolution happened, it wasn't popular to be called the Church of England. In America. It's a real pretty brick building. Real pretty brick building, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but that church has for a couple of decades now been, as a denomination, dying from within because it's getting so liberal on certain issues. Now, the Methodist church. I, ever since I've been in the Church of the Nazarene, 34 years, all I've heard about is how liberal the Methodists are. But somewhere back in the 60s, they started going down a pathway and getting so liberal that they're dying. But yet, do you know, in both of those denominations, I could take you to people who are on fire with the Holy Spirit. I could show you ministers who are preaching life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Even in Episcopalians. Even in Lutherans. and every, they're, they're, they're out there. Just not out there enough as they need to be. Because we need, why? Because we need revival. We need revival. I think it's, uh, I, you know what, I, that's a great question, Jackie. Do the people, I don't think that we can blame the people. I, the, the, we have to blame ourselves, and I'm speaking of me in the ministry. You know, the Apostle Paul says, how will they believe unless somebody preaches to them? Well, that's my job. Yeah, but they got that's our job. I wonder if the preachers are preaching it. Like I said, I can take you to some that I know are. I can take you to a lot that I know aren't. So, I'm not trying to put anyone down. I'm just saying, until the Christian church, whatever its persuasion, Nazarene, Baptist, Catholic, I don't care what it is, until the Christian church wakes up to understand that we have, we must begin to reteach life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's what people need. It's the only thing that works. There is no substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Whatever you're facing, whatever fears you're facing, whatever problems you're facing, whatever dangers you're facing, there is no substitute and there is no greater help than the power of the Holy Spirit in our innermost being. That's where Jesus is taking, that's what he's saying here. And he's saying that it's going to happen. It had happened 50 days after Easter. It was called Pentecost. And it can happen anytime, any day, anywhere. Each of us needs our own Pentecost. Sometimes we need many Pentecosts. I've had many in my life, and i got a feeling I'm going to have many more. You know? Because we're human. And, and sometimes we find ourselves not doing what we know we should do. And God is so faithful to always be there with his spirit to 
strengthen us and pick us up. But we, we need to. So I'm not assigning blame. If I'm assigning blame, I'm assigning it to the preachers of our world today that are not preaching it enough. Um, and I'm one of those, so I have to take that blame too. But uh, Joshua said, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. I, I just have to say, as for me, I have to preach holiness. I have to preach the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the only way to live in this world. In the overcoming victorious life. And that's what Jesus died for. Wow. Any thoughts, questions as we close today? What, question. what questions do you have? Yeah. In my Bible after verse 52, it says the earliest and most, after that, it says the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John 7 to 53 to John 8, 11. Yes. Else they all should say that. And what I that is... I got verse 53. Right, in verse 53 it says they went each to his own house. Yeah. So what that is introducing our next section, and let me take a minute since you brought that up, it's a good, good question. The next section that we're going to study, the first uh, of chapter 8, is it 16 verses or I can't remember. 753 to what did you say? To 8? Uh, Verse Verse 11, okay. So the first 11 verses of chapter 8 are not in, the reason that's in parentheses in a lot of your Bibles and you see that note is because that's not in some of the earliest manuscripts. Now, think about this with me. I talked a little bit about translations. Most of our Bibles here are of a Masoretic text, 9th century translations, Okay. What has been discovered since the 9th century? A lot. A lot was discovered even in the 20th century. The Dead Sea Scrolls and other things. There's been many discoveries throughout all the centuries of more earlier evidence than what the medieval church had to print. Okay. No, no, not really. Don't think of it as doctrine. There's no doctrinal difference. What there is is just... The fullness of the story. In other words, there are details to the stories in the Bible that, that we keep finding or have found through the centuries that maybe weren't in some of the earliest translations. That's why one of the knocks about the King James Bible, there's two knocks about the King James Bible. You know, it got kudos today because it got the word belly right. But sometimes the King James Bible, number one, the first knock against it is it's, a, it's an archaic way of talking that we just don't talk that way anymore, so it's hard for people to follow. But number two, it does get some translation things wrong a lot more than a lot of others because it is based on medieval transcripts, medieval manuscripts, I should say, translations that are not as accurate as today. Now, is there any new discovery that changes doctrine? No. Is there, there's never been anything new discovered. We know that as it says in the book of Jude, God delivered the faith once and for all to the saints. And we know that he has kept his word. But what has happened is more and more discoveries have given us earlier uh, versions of the book of John and others. In the book of John that we're reading now, there are more manuscripts available for the book of John than any other book in the Bible. I believe I'm right on that. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure it's prolific. There how many John was just out there. Um, so... When it says that, it's just saying that some of the very earliest 
Bibles now put that in parentheses say, remember, this wasn't in some of the earliest. Well, how would, if it wasn't in the earliest firm, maybe John didn't write it. Maybe somebody else tagged it on to John because they felt it was worth telling. Maybe one of John's disciples tagged it on. And it just wasn't in every manuscript. Because remember, there was no printing press. Things were written on loose-leaf scrolls and papers of papyrus, you know, and gathered. Just like some of the books were out of, chapters might have been a little out of order in the, in the book of John as well, too. And that can happen. Because it wasn't some editor sat down and took a book and printed it. And then every copy would be the same. That, that didn't happen in the ancient world. So it's a good question. That's what it means. And you'll see that lots of places in your Bible when you start looking at it. Most Bibles use brackets, not just parentheses, but brackets. Whenever you see brackets, then that means this section was maybe not in the earliest manuscripts that have been discovered. And it's usually a word or a phrase. It's rarely 11 verses, but that's basically the whole story of this woman caught in adultery. And somewhere, someone felt this is critical to the story that John's trying to tell. Maybe John had it in there and maybe that leaf got lost. Whatever, it doesn't matter. The point is, is God has preserved his word for us. And in 2,000 years, nobody can still prove the Bible wrong. Isn't that amazing? In 2,000 years, nobody, we could put a man on the moon, but we can't prove the Bible wrong. They're starting to find more evidence day after day. Day after day, that's right, that new evidence. So why do we always have new translations? Because language changes, and we're finding even new evidence. But that evidence doesn't overturn doctrines. It doesn't overturn the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Great question. We'll pick it up with introducing that next week. Any other thoughts or questions? Comments? Complaints? You've been very kind. Thanks for coming. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time together and study of your word thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to enlighten us and I pray for that gift for everyone in this class. I pray for everyone here to know the depth and the power and the beauty of the life in your Holy Spirit in an ever increasing measure. So as you shed your light on these verses would you cover over anything I say that's wrong or mistakes that I make and would you by the power of your Holy Spirit Give people an understanding of the gospel, of the power of life in Christ through your spirit. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.